0: We are in a series called Overcoming Fear, Choosing Courage in the Age of Anxiety. And the running joke is, Yay, we're studying about fear. And why are we, boo, we're studying fear. Like, it's not that fun, like, coming to church every Sunday to talk about fear, but it's really important. At the end of it, you're like, Oh, yeah, I need, I know I need to, like, look square in the face at my fears. And so that's what we've been doing. We hope that this series moves us beyond the fears that we carry. We could be carrying fears uh, collectively as we emerge from a global pandemic, or there's fears that we uh, carry individually, whether that's like family of origin stuff. We'll talk a little bit about that today. Fears typically keep us from trusting God or following God in faith. That's what fears do. They paralyze us. They keep us trapped. Um, We hope that this series helps us move beyond these fears into trusting God more. Today, we're going to come out of another really classic narrative. Uh, Matthew chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 14, verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22. This is that very famous story that we all know, that if you grew up in church, you, you read this story in Sunday school, probably once a year, um, of Peter walking on water. Jesus and Peter walking on water. And, um, and let's read this story, because I think there's a lot in here uh, a lot here and here that we learn about fear and faith. Today's message is entitled, The Rising and the Falling of Our Faith and Our Fears. Let's look at verse 22. I'll read down through this narrative and I'll pray. Immediately, uh, right, after, right before this, Jesus feeds the 5,000, if you remember. And then right after that, immediately, Jesus made, made, made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him on the other side. While he, was, while he dismissed the crowd, the 5,000. After he had dismissed them, Jesus went on the mountaintop by himself to pray. So Jesus is alone praying. His disciples are in the, in the boat in the middle of the lake. They're fishing. Most of them are fishermen, or some of them are fishermen. So boats, they're familiar with them, all that stuff. And later that night, there he was alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land buffeted by the waves because of the wind. the wind was against it. So another storm happens. We kind of expect this to happen. Every time they get in a boat, you know the storm's going to happen. And the, the wind's kind of beating against the boat where they can't make headway. Shortly before dawn, just to, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. So Jesus is walking on water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat. This is still stormy, okay? Got out of the, get outside the boat, walked on water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Little faith, literally reads in the Greek, little faith. Why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they landed at uh, Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all those who were ill to him, And they begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is our text today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these marvelous, wonderful, layered stories that we have in Matthew's account, Matthew's biography of, of Jesus. And we pray that you would teach us from this. Like every good story, there's so much meaning and and layered into this story, ways that we can find ourselves in this text, and we pray that we would find ourselves here. And then from that, we, modern disciples of Jesus Christ, today, you would teach us the way that you were trying to teach your disciples then. Teach us, Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. I submit my mind, my heart to you, and I pray that you would use me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this week it's official, um, FOMO is back. Um, the, the cover of the New York Magazine says, Return of FOMO, and it's just like, all the, the cover is just like, this is what's back, right, from our pandemic. FOMO, if you don't know, is the f- or fear of missing out, is a popular phrase coined by the venture capitalist Patrick McGuinness in 2004, who funny enough, published his official book on FOMO in May of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. Talk about missing out, that's just such a bummer. (laughs) The article points out what we already know, that as our world in the the US has opened up, there is a lot of social catching up to do, and many of us are are planning our summer to make up for lost time. Now, I don't think FOMO is a healthy thing at all. That's not why I'm bringing it up. So I should have gave you a trigger warning at the very beginning of that, but anyway. I'm not bringing this up because I wanna talk about FOMO. The reason I'm bringing this up is to illustrate that fears only exist alongside of possibility. Fears only exist alongside possibility. For example, you need the possibility of social realities to have FOMO. During the pandemic, there was no fear. There was fear, there's other fears, but there was no fear of missing out because there was no social realities to miss out on. So there was no FOMO. But as the article says, because social realities are back, therefore, the fear of missing out on them is back as well. Now, this is a silly illustration, but it does allow us to zoom in on how fear works. Fears, like parasites, can only survive on another thing, namely hope. Fears mainly survive off our hope meaning fears are not self-sustaining but need some future circumstance or some hope to thrive off of. Meaning fear is just the reverse side of hope. Fear is the other side of hope. But here's the thing. The two sides are not equal. It's not fear and hope are equal. That's not true at all. Hope comes before fear and without hope there would be no fear. As we emerge from a global pandemic, I believe many of us have a lot of hope. And the reason why I know that is because we also have a lot of fear. And fear needs hope to survive. Anytime we hope for and anticipate some future possibilities, right alongside of our hope will be the parasite of our fears and anxieties haunting us with all the potential things that can go wrong. If you've ever started a new job, you know this feeling. If you ever had to make a major life decision, like which college you're going to go to or whether or not you're going to marry the person you're dating, you know this feeling. You have hope, but right alongside of that hope is a bunch of fear. See, fear and hope are both concerned for our lives. Fear is concerned for our lives and hope is concerned for our lives. Fear is concerned for our protected and safe lives. And hope is concerned for our full and fulfilled lives. The reason why we fear is because fear actually is concerned for how, how, how our life goes. It just fears that the worst is going to happen, so it tries to protect us and save us. Hope is actually concerned for our fulfilled lives, like our lives fully lived in the kingdom of God. Our lives fully lived as humans. Now, the trick is not to be ruled by fear all the time, because even though at the heart of our fears is a concern for our lives, our fears rarely do us any good. The protection that fear promises our lives rarely results in a life well-lived. In his book, um, Fearless, Max Lucado writes this, "'For all the noise fear makes and the room it takes, "'fear does little good. "'Fear never wrote a symphony or a poem, "'negotiated a peace treaty or cured a disease.'" Fear never pulled a family out of poverty or a country out of bigotry. Fear never saved a marriage or a business. Courage did that. Faith did that. People who refuse to consult or cower to their timidities did that. But fear itself, fear herds us into a prison and slams the doors. Fear is concerned for our safe lives, but it rarely does us good. It sticks us into a prison of our own fears. We all know this. We all know that it's faith that moves mountains and it's courage that brings us growth and breakthrough. We know this, but we also know that we're human. We're flesh. We're prone to weakness. We're all not as strong as we hope to be, which is why we have this story. See, what we learned from this story is that fear, no matter how mature you are, is a part of all of our stories. So is failure. Failure and fear will, will, will stay with us our entire lives. We learn that our faith and our fears will rise and fall over the course of our lives. But what, what Jesus is trying to do at this point in the story is he's trying to instill into our hearts and into our minds that we don't have to be afraid. Jesus is trying to teach us through our lives that we can Trust that we can step out in faith. And if we fail, and we will fail, and if we fear, and we do fear, that is all a part of our growth. See, I'm not trying to teach you today that you will not feel any fear and you will never fail again. I'm gonna tell you that these are very much a part of our stories. Fear is a part of our stories. Failure is a part of our stories. Yet what this story teaches us is that that's all a part of growth. The key is to feel the fear and keep getting out of the boat anyway. Now let's back up a little bit. If you remember from Al's teaching a few weeks ago, Pastor Al, Al was here with us, Al Abdullah. He taught us from Matthew chapter 8, actually Mark's version of Matthew 8 story, when the disciples were in a boat again, like the first time they were in a boat in the middle of, this, of the same big lake the, the Sea of Galilee, a few chapters earlier. And if you remember from the story that Al taught, Jesus is asleep in the boat as they go through a life-threatening storm. They're, They're afraid for their lives. The storm was so big, a squall was so big that it was threatening to kill everyone on the boat. And Jesus was down below asleep. And they wake Jesus up and they say to him, don't you care that we are drowning and we're about to die? Don't you care about our lives? Jesus wakes up and as he calms the raging storm, he says to them, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Jesus lets the question hang there like any good therapist would. Why are you so afraid? Are you afraid because at the bottom of it all, you think that there's, there is no loving God who really cares for you? Are you afraid because you think that life is too unpredictable and therefore you can't trust anyone or anything? Why are you so afraid? Don't you see that I am with you? I was asleep, but I'm with you. That's the question that hangs in the air for several chapters in Matthew. And Jesus does some crazy stuff between chapter 8 and chapter 14 of Matthew. You should read for yourself. He does some crazy stuff to instill in them that they can trust Jesus. So when we come to chapter 14... Jesus sends them again across the lake in a boat. But this time, he's not in the boat with them. And you can almost anticipate this happening, right? If you're reading this story for the first time, Jesus sends them into the boat, and you're probably thinking, they're going to hit another storm. And they do. A storm comes. But here's the difference. This time, the storm is not life-threatening at all. It's a more subtle storm than that. The text says that their boat was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it, which means they were stuck. They couldn't make progress. They were exhausted. They were frustrated. They had been rowing for like eight hours without any movement whatsoever. Jesus didn't come to them until the morning. They rowed all night long without any progress. What should have been maybe an hour trip took them eight hours. These kinds of storms are almost worse in some ways than life-threatening storms. Life-threatening storms, when they happen in your life, you can take off of work. People send flowers, cards. They send you messages on Instagram, like the nice version of Facebook. They send you things like, hope you're doing well. Oh, my gosh, I'm praying for you, all of that stuff. When life-threatening storms happen, people rally around you. When life-threatening storms happen in your life, it makes you question it all. It makes you ask things like, is God real? Does God even care about me anymore? And the result, life-threatening storms are clarifying. They're purifying. They're even cathartic in a certain way. But the kind of storm the disciples were stuck in this time, these are altogether different. These kinds of life storms where you're stuck, where you've tried everything in your power to progress and move on, but you can't and you don't know why, and you don't know if and when it will ever stop, these kinds of storms grind you into resentment. These kinds of storms sap your joy. They lead to things like depression. They leave you without power to do the things that really matter in your life. They keep you from where you're going. And in these storms, you don't typically cry out to Jesus. You don't feel you're allowed to yet. Life isn't that hard yet. It's just a little bit hard. It's not that hard. So you just keep trying to reach the other side in your own strength, which backfires, of course, because in these kinds of storms, you not only lose sight of Jesus, you hardly recognize him anymore. Jesus seems like a ghostly image, a mirage or fantasy, totally unrelated to you and to your problems. Now, not only do I believe that this story actually happened, that Jesus actually walked on water, and so did Peter, but I believe this story happens all the time, again and again to all of us. When we read Matthew's biography of Jesus, we find ourselves in the story, like with any good story. If you've ever read any good story or any good epic, any story, the point is, if we pay attention to the story and its nuances and its layers, we too will be taught the same lessons that the people in the story are taught. That's the point. The reason why Jesus' story is told to us in narratives is that we're supposed to find ourselves in the story and like the disciples, learn the same lessons the disciples learned. And so we're, here we are. As Ash and I have been, my, do, my, my wife and I have been raising our daughter Juniper, we're always looking for lessons to teach her on the way. This is our favorite form of teaching. I mean, she's not in school yet. She's like, not even two and a half. But we're trying to teach her along the way. Like the other day, we were picking flowers in our front yard and a car was coming up the street and I used this car and us outside as a lesson. It's like the street is for cars and they just, they go down really fast and they go up and down. And so what we do is we stay in the sidewalk and we want her to, to know like basic city safety. So I use it as a teaching lesson. Junie, look, look at the car, look at the car. Okay, this is the, that, 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 that part is the street. That's where cars are and this is where we stay. She's like, Okay, cool. I don't know how this is relevant to what, picking flowers. I'm like, it's all relevant. It's all important. Yesterday, we were walking along the Embarcadero, and I had her, we had her climbing on these huge, the, the, those, not huge, huge to her, but not to us, these pylon things in the middle of the sidewalk. And so she would jump, climb on top of them, and then we had jump off, and she would jump off because we want her to know that it's okay to be brave and do daring things. We're always using life as a way to teach her how to be in the world, right? Now remember, Jesus is a teacher. He's a rabbi. He came teaching and showing the way we are to live in God's kingdom. Some of that teaching he did through oral tradition, parables, words. But a lot of the teaching Jesus did was through putting and allowing his disciples to be in situations where they would have to learn through their lives. This is most of the way Jesus teaches us. He allows us to go through things, And through by going through the things, he teaches us how to live in God's kingdom. So in verse 22, it says this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side, made them. This word made means against their will, which is very interesting. Made them get into the boat. Now here's the deal. This is really important. If you're taking notes, write this down. The text doesn't say that Jesus sent the storm. I don't know if that could even be theologically true. I don't believe that God sends all the bad stuff, all the storms into our lives. But here's what I do know, and here's what the the storm narratives teach us in the Gospels. The text teaches that following Jesus and obeying Jesus won't protect us from storms. Because you follow Jesus, that does not mean you will be protected from storms. Meaning just because you are in the will of God doesn't mean that you will be spared adversity. Getting in the boat and obeying Christ means going through storms. As you obey Christ, you will, you will have to go, you will go through storms. Now right? you have to, you will. Because life is, this This is life. Christ followers contract malaria, they bury children, they battle addictions, and as a result, Christ's followers have to face their fears. Following and learning the way of Jesus will mean facing your fears. This is one of the, the layers of subtext in Matthew's gospel. Jesus allows his disciples to face their fears and then teaches them that they don't have to be afraid. So when they face their fears, Jesus says at the end, typically when they fail, because we all fail, why are you so afraid? Don't be afraid. Take courage. Why do you doubt? He's trying to teach us, you don't have to doubt, you can trust me, be of good courage. He's trying to ingrain this into our lives. So there they are, in the middle of the lake. The wind and the waves are against them them, and they are stuck and they are tired and they're not making any progress. And they see what looks like a ghost. And then they cry out in fear. They all cry out in fear one of the things that I, I really look forward to in being a, a dad uh, ha- is, was having my daughter trust me. And I've always wanted to do this, and I'll tell you a little story of how this is done, but I've all, I, I just could not wait to, to when Junie got to the age where she was walking, standing and walking, where she was able to jump off of things into my arms. Like, trust me, jump! And then she would jump, and I would catch her. Like, I, as, so, as soon as Junie was old enough to stand and walk... I, after I, I would change her diaper on her changing table, I would have her stand up on the changing table and jump off into my arms, except that she hated it for the first several months I did that, like maybe, yeah, several months. And she would, I would say jump, and then she would be like, uh, and then she would just sit down and like grab onto me. And after thinking like, why is she so afraid? Like, why is she so afraid? I remembered that when she was like four months old, I was changing her and I ran out of wipes, And so I reached into her closet, which was like a reach away, like this. And I reached into her closet to get more wipes. And I just turned like this. And I just turned away from her just long enough for her to roll off the changing table. And as she rolled the changing table, my arms were already, like, away from her. So all I could do was I can like, reach my foot out (laughs) to break her fall. Except there was, like, adrenaline going through, so I kind of kicked her. (laughs) I mean, kind of. So not only did she fall from the changing table, I sort of punted her, sort of, (laughs) sort of. And she's fine, she's so fine, she was totally fine. Except she won't jump off the changing table. (laughs) Oftentimes, fear gets ingrained to us when we're growing up. This is family of origin stuff. This is when kids are mean to us in elementary school. This is Dad's accidentally drop-kicking their daughters in an act of trying to rescue them, sort of stuff. Fear becomes just the way that we react to things. Things like the unexpected, things like the unknown, things like the unexplainable. Jesus is walking on water towards them, and their first instinct is fear. Fear has been ingrained so deeply into these men that they think he's a ghost, which is superstition. They thought that people that died in the water haunted the water. Now, Jesus has already played the good therapist role and asked the question in the last storm: why are you so afraid? That already happened. That's the good therapist question and the vital one, but he doesn't do that this time. He doesn't do that. He doesn't ask them why they are afraid. This time, he just speaks to them in their fear. He says, verse 27, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Take is not there in the Greek. So it literally means, he said this, courage, I am, don't be afraid. And there's a place for both, you know. There's a place for us to sit with the question, why am I so afraid? Why do I always react in fear? There's a place for that. There's a place for that with with your community and with counselors and with therapists and with your friends. There's a place for that. In your journaling, there's a place for that. But there's also a place for you to hear these words as well. Take courage. Jesus is there. Don't be afraid. See, what this layer of the story is teaching us, actually it's the main point of the entire story, is that in our storms and in our fears, if we pay attention, we'll actually see Jesus revealed to us clearer in these moments than in any other. See, Jesus uses the word ego me which in Greek means I am. It's the Greek form of that Old Testament God-revealing word, word before Abraham was I am or what, what God says to, to, to Abraham and to Moses, I am. And the point is, in this particular storm, or this reaction of fear, that Jesus reveals himself as, the, as God who walks on the storms. He's revealing to them who he is, I am. This is like a divine revelation. They get a special revelation in the middle of their storm. This actually lays over perfectly over Isaiah 43, where it says, But now, this is what the Lord says He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. For I am the Lord your God, ego amy. I am. Same words. Same thing that Jesus says. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, what happens next is what I believe to be evidence that the disciples, namely Peter, is actually growing They're growing. This is the, I mean, if you're reading the subtext of the story, they're actually, they are growing. Disciples do grow when they're with Jesus. Feeling fear never goes away. Growth means what we do with our fear. So what does Peter do with this fear? He says this in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. If If it's you. Some translations say because it's you. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got out of the boat, which is a trip, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Remember, up to this point, they think Jesus is a ghost. And just a moment ago, they were crying out in fear. But Peter is not afraid anymore. He's been afraid. He was just afraid. And to be honest, he'll be afraid again in about 10 seconds. But this moment right here, he's not afraid. This moment, this decisive moment, he is not afraid. We're told by fear experts that the only way through fear is with massive action. That fear is a part of growth, they say. If we don't fear that we're not growing, they say. But the real point is to push through the fear into the joy of breakthrough. They also say that courage doesn't mean that you're not afraid. Courage means that you're scared to death, but you do it anyway. Because there's no courage needed or required if you're not afraid. That's not courage. That's just life. Courage is only required when you're afraid. Now, all of that is in this story, but we see more than that. We don't see Peter just pushing through fear with massive action. Peter's on, I'm afraid. i got to push through. And he just, if that was the case, then if, as soon as Jesus said, it is I, Peter would have been like, okay, I'm jumping into the water. He doesn't do that. Massive action. I'm so afraid. Oh, I'm going to jump in. He doesn't jump in the water, what does he do? He says to Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. The story is not about risk taking and choosing courage in the face of fear. It's primarily a story about obedience. This is a story about obedience. This is not just one of those impulsive things that Peter does. A lot of people wanna put that over Peter here. Oh, he's just being impulsive. He wasn't being impulsive, he said, if it's you, command me to come to you. He asks you to command him to come. Here's the thing. We need to aim our courage towards obedience. I know that a lot of us aim our courage in all sorts of places. My, my biggest, like, f- not fear, maybe, f- maybe fear, I'll say. My biggest fear in this series is that we'll have a bunch of courageous people that do things that are stupid. That's my fear. Like seven weeks on fear. And like all of a sudden you guys are doing stupid stuff. I'm like, why did you do that? Because there's no fear. Like maybe little fear, maybe some fear, maybe some, maybe wisdom. How about wisdom? My hope though, because fear, fear is always clinging on to hope. My hope is that you would aim your courage towards obedience to God's kingdom. My, cur- my, fe- my hope is that you, we would aim our courage towards evangelism that we would aim our courage over over getting our hands dirty and involvement with the poor. Uh, My my hope is that we would aim our courage toward standing up for what's right and true in the world, that we'd really do that, that we'd break off sin patterns with courage, that we would aim our courage towards obedience to Christ's kingdom. That's my my hope. Of course, alongside of that, it's just fear that we won't do that that would be a bunch of people like, we don't really fear, but we're not doing anything with with our courage for God's kingdom. Notice that Peter doesn't ask for a promise. He doesn't ask Jesus to promise him that he won't sink or promise that nothing bad will happen if he jumped out of the boat. He doesn't say, Lord, I'll come to you, but just promise me I won't sink. Promise me that the storm won't overtake me. He doesn't ask that because that's not a thing. This is hard to learn. We, we, we will do this. i like, God, if, you, if you're wanting me to do that thing, promise me that everything will turn out okay. Promise me that I won't get hurt. Promise me that I won't sink. Promise me that I won't fail. And God won't promise you that. He promises that he will be with you. And so Jesus says, come. Not only is this, story, this is a story about obedience, it's, always, it's also a story about devotion, Because Peter doesn't say, command me to walk on water. That's important. He doesn't say, Jesus, you're on water. Command me to walk on water right now. He says, command me to come to you. And there's a difference there. One is about you doing something great. I just wanna do something great. I wanna walk on water. The other is about following Jesus into something great. That is so vital. I want to follow Jesus into something great. I want to follow Jesus into radical obedience, into extreme discipleship. Something great for the kingdom of God, not for myself, but for God's kingdom. The movement of the second half of the story is all towards Jesus. Jesus is in the water, And Peter wants to walk towards Jesus. And the way that Matthew tells the story is that as soon as Peter steps out in water, he's moving towards Jesus. He's walking on water, but he's walking on water moving towards Jesus. And Peter does it. He walks on freaking water. He walks on water long enough to get close enough to Jesus that when he does start to sink, and that happens too in life, Jesus was able to reach out and grab him immediately. Now, I want to try to land this plane, and I want to ask a few questions. And the first one is, as we look at this story, and, 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 we, and, we, and we understand its context and its meaning, but we, once you do context and meaning, you know, I mean, you can spiritualize it a bit. You can ask some, some questions of the text that might spiritualize the text a bit, but also get to some things in your own heart and life. And the first one would be, What's your boat? What is your boat that you need to step out of? Your boat is whatever represents safety and security to you apart from God himself. Your boat is whatever you are tempted to put your trust in, especially when life gets a little stormy. Your boat is whatever keeps you so comfortable that you don't want to give it up, even if it means joining Jesus on the waves. Your boat is whatever pulls you away from the high adventure of extremely following Jesus. See, there are a lot of good reasons to get out of the boat. When you do get out of the boat and you step out in courage, you're no longer a prisoner of your fear and your faith grows. But there is one reason to step out of the boat that supersedes all the other reasons and it's that the water is where Jesus is. The water may be dark and wet and dangerous, but Jesus is on the water. Jesus is not in the boat in this story. The main reason Peter got out of the boat is that he wanted to be where Jesus was. And here's my hope for you as your pastor. I hope that you have at least one of, one of these stories like this in your life. I want every single follower of Jesus to have one story, at least one story where you dared greatly. Where you obeyed Jesus in ways that caused you to step out of your boat and have a story to tell the next generation. One where... The moment you're taking the step of faith, it's either all Jesus or bust for you. I hope that you've done that already. I hope that you have habituated your life to continue to stay, take steps of faith towards Jesus. And I hope that if you've done that already, you would keep doing it. But my hope is one. One story. Where, you've, where it feels like you're risking it all. But it wasn't really a risk. It was an act of obedience to Jesus. Now, I would be wrong if I didn't point out that this story actually ends in failure. Doubt would overtake Peter on the water. Peter was walking on water, and then he, it says, he noticed the powerful wind and started to doubt. He didn't doubt that Jesus was good. That's not what the the word doubt means here. He didn't doubt that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. The word, means something, the word doubt means something different. It's only used twice in, in Matthew's gospel. The doubt that Peter had is not so much a theological uncertainty or unbelief as a practical hesitation or a wavering. Now, what does this story teach us? Does it teach us that as followers of Jesus, we can do great things like walk on water? Or does it teach us that most of us, even the best of us, can't really sustain the faith and sooner or later, we're all going to sink? It's funny, the, the, the way this text reads is, teaches us both. It teaches that we can do insanely impossible things as we obey Jesus and his commands and... It teaches us that our faith will fail. I would be really wrong if I didn't say your faith is going to fail. That's what the text says. It doesn't say your faith will never fail. The disciples' faith failed often. My faith has failed often. And the rebuke of Jesus to Peter isn't isn't this, like, strong rebuke. He calls him like a pet name. He calls him little faith. Little faith. You almost had it. Why did you doubt? You were on the water, man. You were walking on the water. Why did you doubt? You were so close. And he, but he didn't do that before he rescued him. You see that? He didn't go, why, why are you sinking? It's all your fault. He didn't do it. He grabs him first, saves him, and said, You almost had it. This is like, this is this is the the, the tender love of God right here. He rescues us and then kindly rebukes us. You almost had it. Why did you doubt? You didn't have to doubt. You were on the water, man. You, you were on the water. You didn't have to doubt. We're going to fail. Your faith is going to fail. You're going to give in to your fears at times. And I guess the moral of the story isn't so much Peter stepping out. It's Jesus rescuing him. It's Jesus being right there. One of my favorite spiritual writers says about this passage that faith works best when we don't confuse it with our own efforts. Which means when we're stepping out in faith, the second that we think, I don't know, Peter could have, it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, when you're mindful and conscious of the thing that you're doing, you get your eyes off of, the, uh, off of the, like being in the zone and more on what you're doing and you start to fall, you lose your balance. This is probably very similar to what happens here. Peter starts realizing, I'm walking on water. I'm, I'm walking on water, and then he starts to lose it. Faith works best when we don't confuse it with our own efforts. So what this requires of us is messy courage. Our, our courage will be messy. That when we step out in faith, when we step out in radical faith to the obedience of Christ, it will be messy. There are times where we fail, we we'll overcome by fear. But I, I would much rather be Peter in this story than the other disciples that stayed in the boat. If I stayed in the boat, I'd be like, man, I wish I was me. I wish I was the one who's like, just, I want to come. And so church, I, I, want, I want us to, I want to leave you with this thought. I, I believe that Jesus... We're at a point in, in history, not just like world history emerging from a pandemic, but we have a lot of the articles I've been reading, um, journalists are writing, is that we're all rethinking our lives right now. A lot of us are rethinking what, what, what do I want to give my life to, priorities, who is the community I want to bring back in, what are things I want to start saying yes to. Like we're all a little bit more mindful as we open up. And I want you, as, you, as you're reflecting on how you're going to start being in this world again, to ask Jesus, where are you calling me? And maybe even some of you, you might, ask, you might ask Jesus, would you call me to that? Would you call me to that? I remember when I felt like God called me to San Francisco and I didn't want to come, and something had a shift in me where I had to ask f- to come. And it was a subtle shift between like reluctantly saying, okay, fine, I'll go. I'll move to San Francisco and die for you, Jesus, fine. To, I want that. I don't know what, what will happen, but I want that. Would you bid me to come? There's something there for us. Let's pray. Lord, right now, I, I just want to, I wanted to move into this time right, right now, Lord, where Holy Spirit, I want you to stir in us. What is that? I trust, Spirit, that you're doing that in this room, in people's living rooms or at home, wherever they're watching from. You're stirring faith right now. You're stirring dreams. You're stirring things you're calling us into. A lot of times, the things that we want, not all the time, but a lot of the time as we're as we're following you, Jesus, a lot of things that we desire down in there is something that you want for us. It's not just a selfish thing, you want it for us. I wonder if Peter wasn't fishing for, the first, for years, just wondering if he'd ever be able to walk on water. And he saw his chance. What are the things, Lord, would you bring them to mind? Come, Holy Spirit.